HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Heritage Foods USA, the nation's largest distributor of heritage breed pigs and turkeys. For more information, visit heritagefoodsusa.com. I'm Grace Bonney of After the Jump, and you're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Radio, radio for young farmers by young farmers. Today I'm joined by Rebecca and Jeremy at Peace on Earth Farm in Vermont. Wait a minute, did I do that right? Yes. Hi, welcome. Hello. Hey. <laughs> thank you for, for joining us. us and thank you for being uh, available to come indoors in the most busy time of the year. Do you want to just get briefly started talking about where you are in the world and what your operation consists of? Sure. Um, so we are in um, the northeast kingdom of Vermont and in Albany, and um, we have a pretty small-scale operation. We grow uh, sprouts and shoots and vegetables and small fruits and uh, raise a few animals, chickens, ducks, and pigs. Tell us about your area of the world there. What else? What's what are your neighbors growing, and what's the context for your operation? Uh, well, there's a lot of other um, there's a lot of dairy farms, and there's quite a lot of diversity of you know small scale vegetable operations and you know mixed mixed kind of diversified crops and a lot of entrepreneurial um, you know small product. Based businesses in Vermont, especially in our area, I guess. Yeah, a lot of organic farms as well, certified organic and not certified. Um, and what yeah. attracted you to that area? How did you choose to farm there? Uh, well, I grew up in Vermont, and um, I guess I ended up in the Randolph area, so like the middle of Vermont first based on that's where my brother has a dairy farm. And I worked with him for a little while. And then as Jeffrey and I um, got got married and we lived together for a while, um, we had a vegetable operation 
on my brother's land, um, and that was never meant to be a permanent situation. Um, so we were there for four years, and then we started. We first started looking around for land in that area, in the middle of the state, and we had. We were we were first looking, I guess, to not have a mortgage. We were looking for sort of an untraditional situation, maybe shared shared land or um, a land trust or something like that, and went through whole bunches of situations. Didn't have anything quite work out, and we as we ended up in our land search, we looked further and further north in Vermont, I guess, because land prices were cheaper. <laughs> And, and that's kind of uh, part of how we got to this, you know, to the top of top of the state. So that sounds like a story uh, that we could go a little more in detail with because there's um, we have a very strong segment of our Greenhorns audience who are in the land search land searcher category of human, which is almost a full time job to be such a human. Uh-huh. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about what it was like? Emotionally, economically, psychologically, uh, familially, as a partnership, dot, dot, dot. <laughs> uh, it was a lot of everything. Um, it was frustrating and empowering, and we learned a lot about ourselves, and and we moved a lot. I think we moved every couple years from different apartments, because we were commercially farming, at Rebecca's brother and uh, sister-in-law's farm, and and then we stopped doing that. We pretty much gardened at community gardens, and and it was you know every couple years we uprooted, and you know and never got a chance to like we want to grow perennials. We're very into permaculture. We were just learning about permaculture and and more permanent systems, and we're like, wow, we want to grow these things. They take like thirty years to produce nuts or whatever, and it's like so we started like potting stuff up and just moving stuff and we moved a lot of plants and so that's pretty frustrating when you're trying to like really set down roots and like a lot of situations that you know may be mortgage free doesn't mean it's like secure and like you know the people that you're sharing the land with could just be like I'm moving and I'm selling the land and I want to subdivide it and you're out of here you know, there's no security. And, like, there's not a lot of security in having a mortgage either. One of us could get injured, and we couldn't pay our mortgage, and we're off the land, or we can't pay our taxes, and we're off the land. So it's land ownership and farming is really tricky, and 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 it was just a long – it was so many different situations, and um, but we learned a lot from it, and I feel like, you know, that we, we should be able to share that now because it was really challenging and – and why we decided to go for a mortgage, and a lot of it is because we could. We both have full-time jobs, kind of, and banks were like, okay, this is what you can afford, and that's what how we were, came. We were in Hardwick for a couple of years, and then we moved north, and we were at a community garden there. and So we learned a lot about, like, non-commercial farming, but we learned how to, like, grow food in more permanent systems like sheet mulching and no-till and, so we may not have done that if we've stayed on that same plot, tilling and, you know, doing what we've always kind of learned from other farmers. And now we're kind of unique in how we farm and do things commercially. Um, so I don't know. What do you think? How do you feel? <laughs> um, 
I think you pretty much pretty much covered it. <laughs> well, this whole um, this whole thing about you know how much you can afford precipitating action. That's I mean that seems like a um, that seems like there was some pent up. There was work. There was work. There was process. There was churning. There was looking, and then there was. It seems like in most of these land stories that I'm hearing, there comes this moment where people are like, "Okay, we don't do this. It's never going to happen. We got to. We got to make it happen right now." Yeah. You feel yeah, like I'd, that I'd agree with that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We had kind of a sense of like urgency of like we want to grow food for people. And we know a way we could do it without using machines we, and trying to learn how to use other animals, you know, like oxen and, and draft power and other animals. And it's like, um, oh, oh, I kind of lost my train of thought. Um, like, you, were talking about, you were talking about growing crops without animals. I mean, yeah. Sorry, growing crops without machines. Yeah, that's really important to us, and like, um, and we we feel like we just needed to get somewhere because otherwise, I don't. We could go another five, six years, and here we are, further into what we feel is kind of a situation where it's unknown. In the next five, ten years, could we be like Cuba? You know, like that kind of stuff happens. Of like, you know, could everything be pulled out from us and we don't get propane anymore or get whatever, we don't have gas to drive our, my round trip to the food co-op that I work at four days a week and then we deliver produce to and, and sprouts and stuff. It's like, what if that gets pulled out from us? So we kind of, like, try to think ahead and, and we, like, being on temporary situations, it didn't feel like we ever got traction. And it's like, okay, it's like, we can do this. Let's just deal with it. It's like renting. We're paying rent. That's pretty crappy apartments, and it's like, not having land to grow food on, now we can provide food for ourselves, almost a good chunk of our food, and and then also make income from it. And um, so we felt like this was a good avenue, even though. And we're going through a credit union, so it's a little better than just a regular bank, like you know some of the big corporate banks. So it's trying to keep it here, and you know you can get creative too. There's like ways to like maybe create like a. Um, community uh, community revolving loan fund where people can invest into your farm to pay your mortgage off. You know, instead of us paying, you know, like we're paying more than double the value of what we paid for the farm in interest over 30 years. And it's like, hey, if we paid our mortgage off in Vermont, we can pay it off tomorrow if we had enough people invest into the farm. And then we could have this revolving loan fund where, you know, they invest their interest back into... Uh, us giving, you know, reduced shares to low-income families in our community, you know, stuff like that, or to be able to give food uh, to the food pantries and food shelf, that kind of stuff. And then we're not paying 200 something thousand dollars in interest over 30 years when that, that's crazy. Like, it's crazy. That's what kept us from wanting to get a mortgage, but now we have one, and that's our reality. But if we could pay it off and then do some cool stuff with that, then, you know, that's a lot of money that we're not putting out every month into mortgage. So, um, but so there's lots of benefits of it, and but we definitely there was this kind of just felt like we needed to do this and and start and because part of our farm is educational, so we want to be able to like share what we do with our community and 
and have we're starting to have workshops and things like that. And um, it's not just about. And did money. that work? Did you find people who wanted to put to wanted to put pay towards your pay towards your costs and share the 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 power of many and and bear the cost of of that interest? Or how did that end up working? Oh no, it's still in my head. It's not. <laughs> we we haven't manifested. I like it to happen. And we don't know. We got to meet the right people, and just haven't. We're just so busy, you know. Rebecca's at least working full time at the farm now for the past year, and I'm off the farm about forty hours a week with commuting. So, um, so it hasn't happened. I'd like it to happen. If someone out there knows how to make that happen, hit us up at our contacts, because that would be great. Um, but that's the kind of thinking I think we need to start shifting towards instead of like capital driven and like oh how do we make money to like like we still have to do that we have to pay our mortgage so like yeah we have to do these things like grow sprouts year round that it's really not all that sustainable for us right now because we're growing them under lights that use electricity and we import seed and soil and all this stuff and grow in plastic trays so it's like eh, it's really not that sustainable but it's a good chunk of our farm income to get all this stuff planted that takes, like, you know, like blueberries and asparagus that take a few years to get going before you can get good yields from it to, like, earn a living from those types of things. Um, so well, but that was our priority. Well, let's talk a little bit our... because sometimes people think that um, that you can't grow sprouts in a super rural area, but here you are growing sprouts in a super rural area, and it sounds like you're you're having some success. Yeah. yeah, I mean, yeah. you want to speak to that? Sure. I mean, for us, uh, there wasn't really anybody in our immediate area growing a lot of sprouts, and um, we just thought of it as, you know, something that we can earn income at pretty quickly in a small space year-round um, while, because we're doing, you know, all of our farm practices by hand, it's it's a pretty slow process to create larger gardens. Um, so the sprouts were a way of generating some income, you know, as we're slowly building the rest of the farm. Um, and we found it to be pretty, uh, you know, profitable. And for, for the most part, there's markets for it, especially in the wintertime when there isn't, you know, as much other local greens around, um, even though... We are in a rural area. There's mostly we sell to restaurants and stores, you know, several co-ops, and we do a winter farmer's market. And, and the sprouts actually okay. helped us. Like, we're, we're trying – last year we started a CSA, and, and it's been slow going for us getting CSA members, and this year we haven't had that many sign up either. But so we have, like, you know, we – plan on this many CSA members, but okay, we only get half of that. But our sprout accounts, we can, they've gotten us our foot in the door a lot of places to sell other vegetables. You know, if we have an, an excess of this or that, we just say, hey, we got this this week, and, uh, you know, we get rid of three, four, you know, three quarters of it because they're like, oh, yeah, we could totally use that. And so the sprouts has definitely helped us a lot. So if we, like, scale that back, you know, and don't want to do that as much anymore or just do it more in the winter or scale it back, then we still have other things that we can to market through those accounts. 
So it's been pretty great for us. Let's talk a little bit about let's talk a little bit about the sprout market. I mean, uh, not the sprout market, but the sprout process. You know, um, I know that sprouts are different from shoots, and that there's some there's some regulatory differences there. But will you just give us a little beginner basic on the sprout growing? the sprout growing that you do and, and how maybe you learn that process or what it's been like to learn it? Sure. Um, so the difference between sprouts and shoots being that shoots are grown on soil and sprouts are not. Um, we grow our sprouts just in um, half-gallon glass mason jars, and uh, it's really just a process of, you know, soaking them in the beginning um, overnight, and then, you know, each day, depending on the type of sprout, it's between, like, three and seven days, they're rinsed twice a day um, and, you know, kept dry in between. Um, and then it's just a matter of washing and washing, and some of them, the, the holes need to be removed. Um, and as far as the shoots, we grow them in trays with potting soil under lights indoors, um, and they're pretty densely seeded, you know, so they get fairly fairly tall. Uh, we grow sunflowers, peas, buckwheat, and radish shoots, and some wheatgrass for juicing for some customers. Um, yeah, and I don't know if that answered. So your major issues are fungus, mold. My yeah, own. yeah, we do get rot sometimes. That's the problem of growing the same thing over and over again in a small in a small space. So we do try and we have a dehumidifier and fans going, and we're kind of constantly um, experimenting a little bit with seeding rate and moisture and that kind of stuff. But yeah, yeah, ideally it'd be nice if we had an attached greenhouse to our house, and then we're able to grow them, you know, maybe with minimal lighting, you know, artificial lighting, or maybe not even at all, because they don't really need as much light as you'd think, and especially in the beginning stages. But if we could do, like, alternative ways to heat the greenhouse, you know, with wood or, you know, passive solar and things like that, and, um, you know, solar hot water, that'd be great. But we, we don't have money and we don't have, you know, time and stuff to make that happen. It'd be great. Like, but that'd be an ideal situation, and then you're not using as much electricity, and the plants would actually, I think they would do a lot better. I think the plants would be healthier if they're getting their photosynthesis from, you know, sunlight as opposed to, you know, we use compact fluorescents that are full spectrum, but it's not the same. Um, so, but that's what we do now, so it works, and it, it does, it's a little challenging to, you know, to grow things inside. Um, but we're we're learning a lot. We've been doing it for what a couple two and a half years now. And I used to work at a sprout farm uh operation in near Hardwick, Vermont and Tolabell Farm and worked there for just not even that long and he shut down his operation so he could build a new operation and then he's still I think he's still working on that and so I learned a little bit from him. And a lot of the stuff we do, we kind of we learn from him and how some of the systems and stuff like that. So um. it's definitely all about systems when you're doing something that's so small. 
Yeah, we didn't hear. What was that? I guess. I guess the other question I have is is like an economic question. I mean, I heard a little rumor that because of all this frenzy around kale and kale, you know, sprouted microgreens. Microgreens that there was a shortage of kale seed in in uh, in Canada. Oh, that's why that is? Oh, we were wondering about that. Um, we didn't so know you that. Just tell us a little bit about the emerging market in microgreens. Um, if it's if it's fun, if it's hype, or like what you what your perception of is of it. Hmm. Um, I don't know. For us, it's been kind of steady. <laughs> I don't. I there isn't a lot of other people. Jumping on the bandwagon around us, I guess. There's some farms that like do a little bit of microgreens in the summer, like in their greenhouses and stuff like that, like for farmers market. And I don't know if like what we're growing would be considered microgreens. It's usually, I guess they're considered microgreens. I think it's just a matter of who's defining it, but yeah. But they fetch like at the food co-op. We usually don't sell microgreens because the price would be they're really expensive. Like, ours are probably, like, half of what microgreens would cost, our shoots, as far as, like, our costs and everything. Um, but it's kind of cool. We, I've thought about it, and, like, there'd be some cool things you could do, but, like, our systems are, it's already, uh, like, on a two-week schedule with some of the shoots, like the sunflower and peas, and it's, they have something that can go for, like, three weeks with, like, the timing would be really tricky. We have limited space, too, because we're using those same lights for uh, vegetable starts, like all our tomatoes and alliums and things like that, the warm weather, weather crops. So it, it gets a little crazy. We've been a little creative with the space and, like, opened it up and and kind of doubled our space by, like, stacking tables, and you can get creative like that. Like, think your space before, you, you know, like building a facility. Like, it would be great if we had a facility that was separate, from our home, but it, it's not an option. So, um, so you can get creative with your own space, like right inside your home. Um, well, and I want to know a little more about the whole the whole horse situation. So, the whole what? Sorry. The um, you're farming with horses. Oh, oh no. We we actually don't farm with horses. You may have seen oh. we we talk about. Um, animal power but we're actually we have prepared garden space with like rotations of our chickens and pigs and we would consider you know us as the animals that are involved too actually we're most of the labor that <laughs> that yeah. goes into it we were training a, um an ox, a single ox um up until recently and it didn't work out we had gotten an, an older animal, um, and we didn't have very much experience with training draft animals. And so we tried, so tried working with him for... Did you another dimension of him? What's that? Did you end up experiencing um, his other dimension in the flesh, as it were? Oh. Uh, we're about to? About to, Are you yeah. asking if we're eating him? <laughs> Yeah. Yes. Well, we just recently um, ended up slaughtering him. Yeah, because it didn't didn't quite work out, and weren't feeling safe with the situation anymore. But um, 
we're going to take a little break from draft animal training and then um, probably try again next year, starting with a calf or a team maybe of calves. But so your major tillage animal at this point is yourselves and your pigs. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We do. Um, we create garden space mostly with sheet mulching, and so you know the pigs and chickens would be like in maybe a year in advance or something like that, more for fertility and knocking back some of the saplings and things. Um, but primarily we, you know, we do sheet, sheet mulching, which um, is just laying down thick barrier layers of, of cardboard or newspaper on top of the sod and covering that with, with um, pretty good layers of compost and mulch. We use um, just hay a lot for our mulch because it's the most available and controllable um, mulch out there. So little, little by little, it seems like you're going, you're, you're going, you're getting there. Um, what is your next challenge, or what are you thinking about now? It's May. It's like insane time. Big mm-hmm. picture is sometimes harder to focus on at this time of year, but. Um, What's the big picture that your small sprouts are growing towards that you want to share in closing? Um, well, we're, I mean, trying to get all kinds of things in the ground right now, but as far as our our goals for the year, you know, we're always trying to um, make sure we have good markets for things, <laughs> like we're trying to get more CSA members and make sure once we grow things, we actually can sell them. Um, we're, we're thinking of building a root cellar this year also. Um, we're not positive about the design yet, but we might do something like um, earth bags or rammed earth tires and want to incorporate um, frozen ice buckets that you can freeze in the wintertime and bring down um, into the root cellar as things are warming up and be able to use it as a cooler more into the summer. That's kind of one of our... Kind of like an ice house. Yeah. That's kind of our, one of our projects. Um, Wait a minute, but it's cold. You're saying because it's not cold under the ground because the house is warm, but outside it's still cold? We're talking about, so if we had this root cellar built and then during the wintertime we would freeze buckets outside and as the temperatures are warming up outside, we would bring those buckets into the root cellar um, in some sort of an insulated area so that the buckets stay frozen for a long time and are emanating that cold into the space so it can stay cold longer, you know, into the summer. So we don't have to use a refrigerator to, like, hold our CSA shares or any produce and stuff like that. Wow. Well, I really hope that you experiment with that and you put your hypothesis and documentation and outcomes on FarmHack. Because oh, that's a great idea. The revival yeah. of the ice house could start a, could start a whole new non, non-refrigerated revolution here. Yeah. Yeah. We know we've visited one other... Um, version of the same idea that's in uh, Colchester or no, Essex Essex Vermont. Essex, Vermont and that is actually a passive freezer so they don't use it as a 
as a root cellar, but they try and have enough frozen bottles and barrels and things that they can actually keep the space frozen passively into They made it till August, July, July, they made it or July or August last year. Yeah. yeah. Which is pretty cool. So it can be done. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, passive stuff's really important. That's what we find is, like, if you can integrate as much passive, you know, appropriate technologies and not technologies to your farm, like, the better you're going to be instead of invest. Like, we've had our friends, like, say, oh, you just need to get a tractor and give us all these things, this and that, about, like, how important it is to have a tractor and what you can do and, like, use the fuel while we got it. And I'm like, yeah, but we can't fix it. And, like, when that thing, like, leaks, it leaks petroleum and, like, funky stuff. But, it, like, a, an oxen, like, or a horse, like, poops it, and pees, like, so it fertilizes. And if it, like, it gets unruly or whatever or hurts itself and you have to put it down, you can eat it. You know, you can't eat a tractor. So, yeah. Truer words were never spoken. You cannot eat a tractor. <laughs> um, I want to make sure to remind all of our listeners to check out the new book, which is called The Market Gardener by Jean-Martin Fourier. He's a French-Canadian from Quebec, and it's kind of like Elliot Coleman, Next Generation, about himself and his wife, um, who are, um, what's her name, uh, Hélène, uh, Marie-Hélène, and they are basically making a hundred thousand dollars a year on an acre and a half with all hand tools. Yeah. Uh, they have a very small and beautiful attitude, and uh, similar sentiments about the tractor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's more about just you know how I how I want to spend my days. I I prefer to do. I don't mind doing heavy lifting versus spending time. You know, around machines and stuff. Breathing fumes. I don't really like working on them, so it's just a matter of preference. And it's cheaper startup. We do we do use a chainsaw. That's our one machine, and drive a vehicle. And we did have a truck that was kind of like a tractor, but we don't have a truck anymore. So, but we do use a chainsaw, and we were just using it the other day, and it's horrible. I hate it. Like, it's but it's fast and it works, and if you're safe with it, it works really well. But. But then, again, it's like we're trying to, you know, we have a permaculture group that we're a part of in our area, and and we're talking about, like, how to use hand tools. And, you know, it's like, okay, how do we do all this with an axe? And it's like, oh, you can if you just sharpen it right and have a good handle and, like, the know-how, you can do this all with an axe. And you don't have to breathe, like, horrible fumes. And, like, so it's like all these old skills I think we have to really, like, try to rekindle them and seek them out in your community. Like, find elders in your community that know how to make a, you know, a carriage. You know, like, we have one in our community, and he's, like, 94, and he's, like, on his fourth carriage, and it's, like, I haven't really go hung out with him, and I need to. Like, I encourage that. I think it's important. Well, you know, there's sometimes there's a little bit of horsepower snobbery that comes along with the ag culture, and, like, uh... There's, like, guys who get into their machines, and then they start kind of... It's a little bit like cars or motorcycles or guns. I mean, I don't know. It's like this boy thing. But <laughs> it's very nice to notice that there's another vein and, and that there's uh, there's perfectly good reasons for making alternative decisions that may, over the course of the life of the land, for sure, 
add up to much greater sustainability and and in, in the life of the farmer as well, um, have a much lower cost uh, in terms of debt, in terms of in terms of maintenance, and in terms of uh, carbon emissions. So I think uh, we've got to sometimes expand our minds and not judge. There's a lot of judging that happens, and that's in the machine department. I noticed. That's, that's the only moral lesson I can really extract from our conversation today. I want <laughs> to think through what um, what other announcements or resources you want to tag, and I'm going to make a little announcement for the main sale freight panel that's coming up on June 22nd. It's the Lincolnville Grange in Lincolnville, Maine. It's, it's actually called the Tranquility Grange. It's a partnership between the Penobscot Marine Museum, Greenhorns, Mosca. Uh, Maine Farmland Trust, and others will be joined by uh, Lou Yoder of uh, Sail Vessel Kwai, uh, Patrick Kiley from the Vermont Sail Freight Project, myself, also Vermont Sail Freight and uh, Greenhorn, Lou, oh, I already said Lou Yoder, Kate Cronin, who was the first captain and female captain of the Clearwater Sloop in the Hudson River back in the 80s, um, Lance Lee of the Prentice Shop, and um, Ellie... Kaufman of the Mystic Chiefs, so that many voices from different parts of the world. I'm uh, talking about the revival of the working sale. Oh, and Chipperly Good from the Penobscot Marine Museum. He's the curator there talking about the history of cell freight up and down the main coast. So it's a community event. It's a potluck. It's at 5 o'clock on June 22nd. You should RSVP, s'il vous plaît. And um, meanwhile, the main, the Vermont sale freight sales again. She's departing in just a few weeks in Vermont. She'll be hitting the same spots, Mechanicville, Albany, Troy, Hudson, da, da, da. And all of that is posted on our website, um, thegreenhorns.net slash main sale freight, thegreenhorns.net slash main sale freight. Um, and then for Vermont sale freight, you just go vermontsalefreight.com. Um, other events are upcoming, but I'm going to pass it back to you for a 20-second worth of endorsement or announcement of your choice. Do you want to talk about WordPress? Uh, oh, that's more than 20 seconds. Go for it. Um, um, we also uh, um, part of a organizing a spoken word hip-hop uh, traveling participatory event, kind of like an open mic in rural Vermont, and it's been really fun. And our next one's, I don't know if I should announce that here, sure. June 27th. It's usually the third or fourth Friday of the month in the Northeast Kingdom, c- central Vermont, and it's been a lot of fun. It's like all ages and like... Wait, this is farmer hip, this is farmer spoken word, spoken mic, hip hopity. what's it called? <laughs> it's called Wordcraft, and it's it's not just farmers, but there's, I'm, you know... There's farmers involved or people that garden or, like, care for the earth, and it's fun. There's some really good people involved, and and it's just kind of all voluntary. It's all free and just, like, don't have a lot of time. It's really hard to organize it and do all the stuff we do, but it's worth it. It feels really good. And this, how do people find out more if they want to attend? Uh, they can go to – we have WordCrafts on Facebook. And uh, I have a Facebook page called MC Mycelium, and that's some like hip hop stuff and 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 other stuff, but mostly like music and whatnot. Uh, 
Okay, you heard it here first. MC Mycelium and crew, uh, peace on earth. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you all for listening. Thank you all for farming. I hope it's going great in your season and that there's just enough rain to keep it all interesting, but not too many that the weeds don't grow, etc. And goodbye. Bye-bye. Thank Bye-bye. you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.